This is the Faith Debate, a theological roundtable gab fest, a free-for-all forum with faith community leaders wrestling over the truth. In less than one half hour, learn more about what really matters than what most others learn in a week. The Faith Debate is on the World Wide Web at WFMD.com, keyword faith. Are you ready for the clash of ideas? Are you ready for the sound of freedom? Let's get ready to rumble in this corner, weighing in with a master of divinity from Reformed Theological Seminary, the faith debate master of ceremonies, oh, yeah. <laughs> Troy Skinner. We got a lot of ground to cover today and not, not, not a whole lot of time to, uh, to get it all in. So we're going to uh, set aside a whole bunch of our regular niceties and just uh, drive right into the content we're talking about. Uh, our culture situation right now, it's not a race war, it's a spiritual war. We started this content last week and we're wrapping it up this week and I'm going to just be able, just be able to squeeze it in. So hope you enjoy. Thanks for listening. Here's some of the notes that my uh, study Bible has about the book of Joel. I'm, I'm just going to select a few that will help to echo what by Dina's feeling the way she does about it. So it says the purpose of the book of Joel to warn Judah of God's impending judgment because of their sins and to urge them to turn back to God. Now, understand in the Old Testament, you know, but at this point, the, the northern kingdom's already out to lunch, and so we're left with the southern kingdom, and so they are the representatives of, uh, of God's people left standing at that moment in history. And so this is a word to God's representatives on the planet, to God's people, and he's calling them back to himself and warning them of an impending judgment. Well, who are his people in this moment of history? What represents his people now? Well, the church. And so is God warning the church of an impending judgment on the church and calling us to turn back to God? It's an interesting question. It says, uh, by the way, this was written somewhere around 800 years before the birth of Christ, in case you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, for the setting, it says, the setting is the people of Judah had become prosperous and complacent, <laughs> taking God for granted. They had turned to self-centeredness, idolatry, and sin. Joel warned them that this kind of lifestyle would inevitably bring down God's judgment. Boy, if that doesn't sound like us today, holy cow, we're prosperous but complacent. We, take, we believe that there's God, but we take him for granted. We've turned to self-centeredness, idolatry, sin. Man, oh man. So yeah, if you read the book of Joel, it is going to address our situation, I would say trying to basically pull me and everybody else into the Colin Kaepernick story and the narrative around that. And I don't feel like it's the most helpful case study because there's so many uh, facets and factors of how you want to view that. And each one of the factors and facets deserves its own conversation. So I didn't want to go there. So I was like, okay, let's just go down to brass tacks here. We're talking about the whole Black Lives Matter thing. And somebody was asked about that and his response was to say and whether it was you know meaning to be a provocateur knowing that people would push back against it because some people have pushed back against the response of all lives matter i get that but he could have also just been innocently saying hey yeah i'm all for black lives i'm for all lives all lives matter and he gets fired and yet people are christians these were people these were christians i was dialoguing with christians are offended that colin kaepernick got penalized in their opinion and i'm not even that's why it's so complicated i'm not even sure that's fair 
He was a average to below average to oftentimes bad quarterback for about a season and a half before he went into free agency. He's not the quarterback that he was in the heyday of his career. He went into a slump that he could never get. So I think you know, it's so complicated. But when things get complicated, I think it's important to use another sports analogy is to, or story, uh, to get down to the fundamentals. Vince Lombardi, a famous football coach, Green Bay Packers in the 1960s, won the first couple of Super Bowls. The, the Super Bowl winner gets a trophy every year called the Lombardi Trophy. It's named after Vince Lombardi. He's a big figure in NFL history. And I heard a story about Vince Lombardi. Again, he had these great teams that won NFL championships multiple seasons in a row. And apparently, the story goes, at the start of every new season, the beginning of training camp as they were preparing, he would gather the team around him and he would grab... Uh, a pigskin, and he would hold it up, and he would say, in his own gruff, you know, New York, New Jersey kind of accent, or wherever he's from, say, "Gentlemen, this is a football." You don't get much more basic than that. <laughs> and so, I think it's important for us as Christians. Okay, what is the Christian football? What is it ultimately about? We as Christians, the 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 the, the good news is that we are. We are lost in our sin. We are broken down and we are the walking dead with no hope uh, from ourselves or even outside of ourselves, save God himself would rescue us from that. And so Jesus Christ comes and what was his message throughout the gospels? Repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. So ultimately the football for Christianity is you're either worshiping this, which is not God, as idolatry, it is lostness, it is sinful, it is bad, it is death. Or you're turning, you're repenting, and instead of worshiping these false gods, you start to worship the true God. That is Christianity. And recognizing how to distinguish between the false gods and the true God becomes comes with wisdom it comes with discipleship it comes with bible study it comes with seeking god's will in prayer it comes through all of those things but all of them come down to the very basic fact am i worshiping my creator god the one true god or am i worshiping something else and too often the something else is ourselves and we start to worship ourselves and we forget that we live in a broken world filled with sin, to which I'm a big contributor. All of us contribute to the sinfulness of the world. All of us are sinners. And so when you think about it that way, none of us are victims. About 20 years ago, 30 years ago, there was that uh, Rabbi Kushner put out the book, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Remember that book? Mm -hmm. It was a bestseller on the New York Times list. Mm -hmm. Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? And he goes about trying to answer it, which mm -hmm. he gives a totally theologically non-biblical answer. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll let him off the hook on his argument, and let's go back to the title. Wrong question. Exactly. <laughs> it's not why do bad things happen to good people. We're all sinners. <laughs> now, some of us have good moments by God's grace, but none of us, Jesus Christ, good person. <laughs> Everyone else, not so much. And so the question should be, why do good things happen to bad people? Because we're all bad people. And so none of us, we're all bad people. None of us deserve anything. We only breathe the air that we breathe. I'm only going to take my next breath because God has granted it to me. My heart is always going to continue to beat because God has granted that my heart will continue to beat. 
anything that good comes to my comes my way isn't because I deserve it. It's because God, through his special providence or his common grace or whatever aspect of his will is being expressed, is giving me something I don't deserve. And praise God for that. Right? That's God's mercy at work. If we got what we deserve, we wouldn't be here anymore. So none of us, when understood that way, not one of us can ever think of ourselves as a victim. None of us are victims. If bad things happen to us, we're bad people. We're getting what we deserve. When we have good things happen to us, those are blessings, undeserved, mercy-filled, grace-filled blessings on our life. And so any worldview that puts people in a situation where they begin to think of themselves and others who are like them as victims and part of a class of people who are victims, that is a non-gospel message. It's an unbiblical enemy of God kind of message because how do you talk to somebody about being rescued from their sinfulness and the condemnation they deserve when their self-perception is, well, I'm not a bad person. I'm oppressed. I've been victimized. I've been held down and brutalized. I, yes, I need redemption and rescue from my oppressors. No, you need redemption and rescue from the condemnation of your own sin. That's the gospel. And so anytime we have this victimhood idea and this agenda that's advocating for victimhood, we know right then and there that that is not a gospel proclaiming message. By, if she hadn't gotten furious, you could have had an interesting conversation and she said, wow, I hadn't thought about it that way. And then you could have pivoted and you could have said something like, well, you know what? What you just said, I'm not trying to diminish anything, but first and foremost, let's start with the person and work of Jesus Christ and his suffering at the cross and everything leading up to the cross. And then, and then so because of his infinite victim victimization, we can have additional confidence. We shouldn't have any lack of confidence anyway. We have additional confidence that he understands our pain when we're victimized. Mm -hmm. It's not to say that we're not also victimized. When I say there aren't victims, we're victimized. I get it, but that shouldn't be our defining characteristic of who we are. That's my point. But you, but you can say Jesus can enter into that victimization with you, and he understands, and he can help you get through it, and he can help you have victory over it. And you can have confidence that there's victory over it because Jesus says at that same cross where he is victimized, it is finished. Amen. The enemy felt like it was a great victory, not realizing that it was his ultimate defeat, that Jesus won a victory for all time at that point. And so there's victory in that. And now Christians who have been victimized don't live the lives of victims because they walk in victory. And if we get that wrong, we get the football wrong, we get everything else wrong. And one of the things we've gotten wrong in the church over the last couple of dozen years, probably, maybe longer, but certainly the last couple of years, there's been this huge focus on the church needs to be relevant. And man, has that word begun to bug me. I do think that the churches need to, uh, need to understand their messages. Our message needs to be contextualized. We need to understand our audience, who it is we're talking to, meet them where they are, share the truth in the way that they can understand and speak to them in their situation. That is not being relevant, that's being contextual. Why I make a distinction here is, what does being relevant mean? So being contextual means, what does God think? What does God teach? What does God proclaim? And how do I take what's important to God and, and share it in a way that is meaningful in this context? 
That's contextualization. I'm thinking about what God thinks and how I get the message out. Relevance is worrying about what do the people think and how do I speak to them about what they care about and what they think. I wouldn't want to offend them because that would make me irrelevant in their mind. They won't hear me anymore if I offend them. That's completely inside out. We should be worrying about whether we're going to offend God. We want to be contextual so we don't accidentally or inappropriately offend unnecessarily, but the gospel does offend. Mm -hmm. And so we've gotten into this mindset as the church of we need to be relevant. We need to have relevance all the time. We have to, we have to woo them with things that they'll care about. And so our music changes. Okay, that's style. Maybe not the most important thing. Uh, the time that our worship services begin and end might change that, but that's a logistic thing. Maybe not the most important thing. But you start giving ground on those things, and before you know it, the message itself begins to change. And now you're not talking about sin from the pulpit. Uh, you're not calling out specific sins as examples of what the Bible speaks about. You're not calling people to repentance, because why would you repent if you have no sin? <laughs> You can't point people to the solution if you haven't expressed the problem. But we don't want to express the problem because, well, we might offend them and then we'll come across as less relevant. And then our music, not just our music style, but our musical lyrics. We have so-called worship songs that have nothing at all to do with Jesus, have nothing to do with God, even in a generic sense, half the time in many cases. They're... they're psychologically affirming songs, they're emotionally encouraging songs, but they're not gospel-centered and gospel-advocating songs. So in an attempt to be relevant to the people, the church as a group all of a sudden finds itself now at a moment in time like this when a voice of relevance is so needed, but we're no longer relevant to God. We've turned our back on God trying to please the people and giving them a message that their tickling ears want to hear. Mm -hmm. And it's, it, one, I applaud them, so I don't want to come across critical, but a whole bunch of pastors in this community, when the whole Black Lives Matter thing uh, uh, was reignited with the killing of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd, um, they came together with a bunch of pastors because they need, what do we, what, how do we handle this? What do we do? What do we say? Good for them, but it's discouraging to me that they didn't already know what to do and say and that they weren't already doing and saying it. That's, we got caught flat-footed. The church has been so focused on being relevant, on being people pleasers, on trying to skate around sensitive issues and not diving into the word and not going about the business of making disciples that not just the church leaders, but the church attenders don't know what to make of this. They don't have a biblical response because we've gotten flabby on just about any wisdom question because you can't make a wise decision if you don't know what the Bible says. And we have an entire generation now of professing Christians who don't know what the Bible says. They don't know what God thinks about things, doesn't know what God calls them to do. And so something big happens like a bolt out of the sky like George Floyd gets killed and now there's riots everywhere and it's like how do we respond what do we say well if you had been biblically faithful just keep on saying what you've been saying for your whole Christian walk but we feel like we have to reinvent the God and now my concern is too many not knowing what to say being ill prepared for the moment mm -hmm. 
they're not biblically informed. They're not saturated in God's word. The Bible and scriptures are not the air that they're breathing, but they need an answer because it's an emergency. I've got to have an answer now. People are turning to me as their pastor looking for an answer. What do I tell them? And so they go online, they find a blog, they find a, uh, an influential evangelical leader to see what they're saying. And too many times, there are too many of those people that they've begun to drink the Kool-Aid on critical race theory and cultural Marxism. And so, oh, there's the answer. No, that is not the answer. And now we've been, it's been infected. And so last week and now again this week, my motivation hasn't been so much to turn your thinking on things because if you're watching, you're probably uh, on board with a lot of what my thinking on some of these things are anyway, but to help make us all more aware to recognize it. So when our pastors or our Bible study leaders or our Christian friends or people that we're interacting with that are, uh, that are in our inner circles or our social media spheres, professing Christians, and they're saying things that on the surface, they sound like, well, that might be okay. There are times we need to recognize, yeah, it sounds okay, but it's wrong. The Phil Vischer video that I spent time talking about, you watched it, well, yeah, there were a lot of uh, horrible things that happened to black people in this country historically for a long time. That's so true. But he left out any and all of the good things that happened. He left out any sort of stories of overcoming that. He left out any sort of contemporary examples of victors over that. And he left this picture of, yeah, every, everybody who's black is a victim. Angela's a victim, and she can never stop being a victim because what we've done to her as a black woman. And I'm party, I share in that guilt because I'm a black man, I'm part of the powerful oppressor class, and nothing I do, nothing I do can change that. What did I say? Black man. Oh, a white man. I was like, we know what you meant. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm a white man. I can never escape that. And so there's nothing I can do. There's no repentance for that. And we were talking about that the other day. One of the things that's so important about this, when we become prisoners of the classifications that we're assigned to, right? There's this group mentality. There's the, you're a, we talked about this last week, right? If you're, if you're black, you're in one group. But if you're, and if you're lesbian, you're another group. And if you're transgender, you're another group. And if you're, you know, dis, uh, have a physical malady of some sort of disability in that way, you're in another group. And if you have all four of those groups, that's called intersectionality, where all these disability groups, all these disadvantaged groups, all these oppressed classes, they intersect. And the example I just gave, you're quadruply oppressed. Like, you really need to have the white people get down on their knees and beg for your forgiveness. Not that it will mean anything, because they can't really ever be repented for. <laughs> and the problem with these group classifications is it's not individualized. Basically, biblically speaking, there are two groups. There are the those that have Satan as their father, mm -hmm. then there are those that have our Creator God as our father. Mm -hmm. Those are the two groups. Yeah. And you're either in one or you're in the other. And if you're in the one, the bad group, then you are individually called out of that group and you become part of the other group. So there's an individual repentance that takes place. So Angela, she mentioned like 20 minutes ago that black people have sinned and she had a friend get really mad at her when she said that. Well, if Angela and her black friend uh, decided that, well, you know, actually you're right, Angela, black people have sinned, so the two of us, we should right now, here and now we, the two of us should repent for all of the black sins ever committed throughout history. It doesn't work that way. The Bible doesn't call groups to repentance. I, can't re I cannot repent for Angela. Angela cannot repent for me. We're for other white men. I can't repent for Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson 
can't repent for me. It doesn't work that way. So when we start talking about groups repenting and turning, that is not biblical language. And it, 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 it steers us away from what the gospel call really is. It's you belong to this bad, unsaved, horrible, evil group led by Satan, and we're, we want you to repent from that. Because the otherwise, all you're left with is um, projection. Involved with, and so in the spiritual classifications, yeah, the Christian lives in victory because the victory has been won by Christ. And so our Christian, and anybody who's a Christian, you know, if you're watching this and you're a Christian, I'm sure you've had this experience where you're not feeling so encouraged. You don't have as much assurance in uh, the security of your salvation as you might at other times. And you have a Christian brother or sister come alongside, or you hear a message preached by your pastor or something that reminds you of what's true about you, that you have victory in Christ, you are overcomers, it's already done. It's just a matter of, it's, it's, it's done now, and yet we're waiting for it to be fully, completely realized. So we need reminders about those things. And so the Christian message to Christians is, I know it's hard, I know that person treated you badly, and I know that there are sinners running all of these institutions in our society, and they make things hard for us, and yet we have victory in Christ. That is a Christian message. That is a spiritually Christian message. So what would the opposite of that be? What is the enemy's message? You have no victory. You're defeated. You're a loser. You've been wronged. You deserve so much better. You're perfect the way you are. Other people are holding you down. They're oppressing you. And so the Christian... Their, view, their mindset is to have one of victory, and right they now. need to be reminded of it because they will drift from that. Well, it's the same on the other side, believe it or not, because um, there is a common grace, and we are made in God's image. And so even the worst of us will have a case, until God completely turns us over to the hands of the enemy and completely turns us over to the hardness of our own heart, where we are called to uh, a more righteous standard and moral living and that sort of thing. And so the people who are... They're bogged down in the victimhood, the victimization, but they have these moments when maybe they don't feel quite so much like a victim. They see somebody who's got it worse even than they do, and then they're like, well, maybe I'm not as much of a victim as I think I am, but that undercuts their whole identity because as Christians, we're new creations, our identity is in Christ. Outside of that, what's our identity? Our identity is one self-absorbed, and the world owes me. And if I start to doubt that, I have less assurance in my victimhood. It's a weird way of thinking about it, so we need to have somebody point out to us how, yes, you've been held down. And if you tell them otherwise, they get aggravated. Like, Don't you tell me I'm not a victim. I am too a victim because it's their identity. They can't let go. And so anything that's emphasizing classifications of victimhood or emphasizing how somebody is lost and can never escape because they belong to a group, you become a prisoner of the group. That is not the gospel. And I'm telling you, I've been binge listening to sermons from across the country and I am horrified at what I'm hearing. The overwhelming number of pastors who are giving a pop psychology, cultural Marxist, uh, critical race theory message at this moment in time, it's devastating. So pay attention. What is your pastor doing? And I don't say you have to leave your church, but I am saying if you hear some of these things, go have a conversation with your pastor and say, Pastor, are you, I'm not so sure I'm catching the gist of what you're meaning. What did you mean by that? And have them explain it and be willing to be iron sharpening iron, even with your own pastor. 
because uh, you, you each had different scriptures that came to mind, and, and one that came to my mind that I want to share before we wrap up is the closing chapters of the book of Genesis, when Joseph had just year after year of really devastating victimization, <laughs> unfair, yeah, that's true. you know, thrown in prison and all these horrible things. His brothers basically, you know, sold him, and yeah. you know, they're going to kill him, and slavery. you know, yeah. all these horrible things happened to Joseph. And at the end of it, what was Joseph's perspective? Was well, y'all might have <laughs> intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. And so I think that could be a healthy, helpful perspective for Christians to hang on to is, yeah, the world is doing a lot of bad things to me, but you know what? I'm going to trust that God's got a plan. And though the world might intend it for evil, spiritually speaking, God intends it for good. I need to see the truth in that and try to understand what the truth in that might be and use that as fuel for encouragement uh, to understand that we are overcomers and not victims. And that's going to put a wrap on our multi-week look at it not being a quote-unquote race war, but rather it being a spiritual war. Thanks for listening to The Faith Debate. You can find us online at WFMD.com. Find The Faith Debate page there. You can also find the audio vault and listen to the podcasts there. And you can find podcasts linked on our Facebook page, WFMD's Facebook page. I also put them on my personal page, so you can go to Troy Skinner at Facebook. I'm also on Gab and MeWe and Parlor, And we've got a new website with a church that I lead. The Household of Faith in Christ has a website that you find at, get this, householdoffaithinchrist.com. I know, very creative, right? Householdoffaithinchrist.com. Spent hours working on that one. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. Next week, we're going to talk about uh, the remnant church, I think, is what's on docket for next week. So till then, 167 and a half hours from right about now. Thanks for listening. God bless. God bless.